What a wonder it is. I don't wonder as much that God could love some of you, but I never cease to wonder that He could love me. What grace. What mercy. Oh, what a Savior. What love is this. Praise the Lord. Well, Sunday by Sunday, we're involved in an ongoing, uh, detailed study of Peter's first of two letters, and I'd have you take your Bibles and turn with me for that study. Now we come to verse 10 of 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. We will seek to consider those few verses this Lord's Day. 1 Peter chapter 1. Beginning at verse 10, I'll be reading from the New American Standard translation, a very literal rendering, and you follow along in your good King James, or in your NIV, or whatever other translation you may have with you today. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 10. As to this salvation... The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating, as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them, that is to the prophets, that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things, which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. In the first nine verses, the Apostle Peter has given us A soul-stirring look into the wonders of this great salvation. It is as though he is saying, even if you find yourselves as God's people living in the worst of times, just keep looking to Jesus. He, Peter says, is your living hope. Or as we like to sing sometimes, look full into his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. And now this morning our journey in the footsteps of the great fisherman continues as Peter leads us on to a greater appreciation of what Christ has accomplished for His people and what He has done throughout the whole course of redemption history to this present hour. The last Lord's Day, the Apostle explained how God allows His children, remember, to pass through a great variety of all kinds of trials. He calls them distressing trials. This for the purpose, Peter says, to test the genuineness and the quality of your faith. May it be a tried and true faith, because he knows nothing could be more important. If indeed the Bible teaches that we are justified 
to God by faith alone, what could be more vital than to know that that faith is in fact the real thing? It is genuine faith. And it seems, folks, like trials and tribulations of every kind is about the only way we can have that faith become evident that it is indeed from God and not ourselves. He says, he says this in verse 9, the true believers in Christ do obtain the outcome of their faith, the salvation of their souls at the appearing of Christ. So remember, Peter has that uh, future tense, that future look of salvation, which is yet to be revealed. And in the meantime, remember last week, if you were here, I emphasized the word mean. In the meantime, it is a good thing when faith, faith is tested and proves to be true. Now, this salvation story, the history of redemption, reaches all the way back to Genesis. Our first parents, you remember, after they have sinned, are clothed in the blood-stained skins of innocent animals. It's part of the true story. We learn from that, I think, that cotton is not the fabric of our lives. Lamb's wool, maybe. But that one needs a covering. And what better way for Genesis to prefigure the one true Lamb of God who would come, whose blood would be shed, whose righteousness would become our covering to stand before God. And that's where the story of redemption begins. It continues, doesn't it, with the preaching of Noah, the call to Abram in the leadership of Moses. And then what we'll focus on today, the thundering voice of the prophets. Redemption's ancient story threads its way down through generations of time. And the glory of it for us is it meets us here. It meets us right here in this humble chapel. We have already given testimony to that fact. For we have sung together all that thrills my soul is Jesus. He is more than life to me. He is life itself. Peter says he is our living hope. Peter would not have us forget those who came before us. Now, I want to be clear on this. That while indeed it is only the blood of Christ which takes away sin, nevertheless, we count the blood of our forefathers as also a precious thing. Countless thousands through the ages, I hope you know, have suffered literally the loss of all things. Many, many of them laying down their own lives, having shed their own blood so that you could hear the gospel. So that I could hear it and believe and trust. It comes to us at great cost. And Peter, it seems, determines that a, well, a church history lesson may be in order and beneficial for everyday Christians. Remember he is writing to Christians who in their day are already paying a high price just because of their commitment to Christ. They've left home. Many of them have been killed. See what it says here in, in verses 10 through 12 again. I'm going to be reading from a slightly different literal English translation, but we do well to read this small portion twice. 
Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he, the Spirit of Christ, predicted to them the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And then Peter says in verse 12, this this just struck me so heavily and wonderfully in my heart this week. It was revealed to them. It was revealed to those faithful prophets that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news or the gospel to you. Well, let's pause again for just a brief word of prayer and we'll dig a little deeper into these couple of verses. Father, our salvation has come to us at an unfathomable, very personal cost to you. You gave your own son. He did not refuse the cross. He laid down his life. This was your eternal plan unfolding through ages of time and has become a gospel now fully revealed to us. Quite literally comes to us on the bruised backs of the prophets and is written in the blood of the apostles and countless saints through the ages who endured all things so that we may know that the Christ promised has indeed now come. That through him, we have been rescued from hell itself through your unfailing mercies and and unconquerable grace. We've received the very riches of Christ, a joy unspeakable and full of glory. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. I wonder what... um, Mental images may come to your mind when you hear the phrase, the Old Testament prophets, or the prophets of old. More often than not, I envision uh, a man of great stature, sort of Carlton Heston-like, a ruddy and red countenance, nostrils flared, eyes ablaze. Thunderous and fearful warnings of holy wrath issuing from a full tongue. And there were times when such holy men of old spoke of things like curses and warned of a destruction to come. But I think we do the prophets of God a great disservice if we view their divine mission too narrowly or even somewhat negatively. Now, some years ago, my wife and my kids, they were little at that time, where we were together enjoying a great day at one of those theme parks. And uh, they thought it might be fun if Dad were to uh, sit down with one of those artists who draw these uh, caricatures. And I can tell you that the end result was that they did have some good laughs at my expense. Actually, it was clear that the young man, the artist that I sat before, was gifted. But I did have to wonder, was it so necessary for him 
to emphasize almost all of those features I would prefer go unnoticed. I mean, one double chin, maybe, but did he have to make it three? And what do you think? Is my nose really that big? Uh, do my ears stick out that far? Well, you get the idea of a caricature. Peter would not want us to have a caricature of the prophets. His purpose is too important for anything less than an accurate biblical portrait of an Old Testament prophet. The clarity of verses 10 through 12 concerning the prophets really ought to humble us to the ground, I think. As we look at what they endured and what they did on their divine mission, it ought to cause us to give glory to God for bringing the gospel to us by such holy and faithful men of old. Now, let's move up close then to the text. And as though we are studying now a very clear picture of the mission of those prophets of old. Verse 10 Verse 10, now contrary to the notion that prophets were angry or judgmental, finger-pointing men, do you see what Peter actually says? Peter says theirs was a message of grace. These were men, and sometimes women, whose lips were full of grace. Even as they warmed sinners and wayward saints alike, They did so like Jeremiah, wetting their scrolls with a flood of tears. For even in the message of judgment that God sends, it comes as grace giving warning to flee from the destruction to come, from the wrath that will be poured out. It is a message of grace to come and repent and be made right with your God. You know, some Christians, uh, professing Christians, I have learned over the years, really aren't that fond uh, of a lot of the Old Testament. I actually remember a dear couple in my former congregation uh, who had set a good cup of coffee before me at their kitchen table one day. And uh, we talked about the things of the Lord and the fellowship, as it always is, was sweet. But then I have to tell you, I was stunned and almost dropped the hot coffee in my lap when matter-of-factly, they told me that they did not read the Old Testament. And of course, I said, why? They said they didn't like the God of the Old Testament. In fact, I later found out that they didn't like too much of what some of the apostles had to say in the New Testament. Uh, And how over the years, they told me, they pretty much settled on reading only the words in the Bible that were printed in red. The uh, words of Jesus. (laughs) had a very small Bible. Now, that's an extreme example, I know. But let me suggest that if you have a problem reading the Old Testament... Let me tell you why I think that may be. Because you misperceive. You see an angry God. Does he ever get angry? Yes. 
Is his anger always righteous? Yes, indeed it is. You see a God who insists upon worship, a God of severity, a God who seems... Why, he just seems to always be saying in the, speaking in the language of uh, thou shalt not. He never seems very pleased with anything much at all. Now listen, if any part of that enters your thinking, Peter reminds us that we haven't understood the prophets. In fact, folks, we haven't really unlocked the books of the Old Testament. And that what we really need, what will bless your heart, so that you can read Genesis through Revelation, folks, is if you will learn to see what is actually there. And by that I mean to see Jesus on virtually every page, yes, even of the Old Testament. Yes, there are warnings. God is indeed fearfully holy and just. The warning of judgment to come is there, but in it all, Is there not a God through the prophet pleading, weeping, encouraging, promising, hope-filled expectation given of the God who's going to come and deliver the message of a Messiah, a Savior, foreshadowed and sometimes unmistakably, plainly pointing to Jesus, the one who comes himself filled with grace and truth. Think of his titles. He is the Lamb of God. He is the Prince of Peace. He is the Rescuer and the Redeemer of his people. So it says there in verse 10, the prophets who prophesied were prophesying of the grace that would come to us. They were not serving themselves, but you and I. God spoke. In times past, the book of Hebrews says he spoke through the prophets. He was clearing the way for the Son of God. The last and great prophet, it's Jesus himself who comes with a message from the Father. The one the prophet said would come, not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So much more than judgment. The prophets actually, Peter says, prophesied of the grace that would come to us. Now, this message of grace was not only prophesied by the faithful prophets, they themselves, it says there in verse 10, do you notice, became students of their own God-given sermons. Someone one time suggested I would do well to study my own sermons. But the prophets did study that which they prophesied. It says so here. The prophets were the first great theologians. Notice it says they made careful searches and inquiries. They did what we call today inductive Bible study. That is asking questions about the true meaning of God's revelation. They look at a verse and they say to themselves, what does it mean? And they made careful search and, and inquiries that must have burned oil in the night. One thing they didn't do, we could learn well from in our generation, they didn't read into their own prophecies. You see, that's deductive reasoning. There's way too much of that today. 
Oh, if I had a dime for every person who ever came to me with a verse of Scripture and then proceeded to tell me what it means to them, which means they have poured into the words something they wanted to say. Prophets didn't study the word that way. Careful search and inquiry. The questions they were asking were questions of the text itself. Now look more specifically at what they did do as faithful Bible students. In verse 11, it says they were what? Seeking to know what person. What they didn't know that we do know now is that person, of course, is Jesus. What person will it be? As they gave the prophecy of the Messiah to come, they, they might have had a right to wonder if it would be by next Tuesday. What person is it? They couldn't know that. What's amazing, though, they had this revealed to them and they wrote about it. They did know, and so they prophesied, a virgin birth. One of them prophesied the actual place of birth, as though he'd taken a pushpin and put it on the map of the Holy Land and it landed at Bethlehem. That's in the Old Testament. They even had cloudy visions of what they knew would be a cruel and anguished death of the suffering servant. The prophet Isaiah writes of the Messiah and what he must suffer. But the larger point, looking back for their sakes, folks, they were seeking Christ. And I want to suggest that's still the only way to read the prophecies. It's the only real reason for reading both Old and New Testament. We get to see Jesus. Let me suggest this to you. If you read the Old Testament, if you do read the Old Testament, and you don't see Jesus there, you might as well convert to Judaism. Because that's exactly what happened to the Jews at the time when Christ came into the world and his own received him not. They knew the prophecies backwards and forwards, but they never saw Jesus in it. It had to be revealed further to them that the things that were part of the fabric of their lives were actually mere shadows and types of the Christ that would come. You read the Old Testament if you don't see Jesus in every page. If you don't see Jesus in Genesis, you might as well convert to Judaism. A Christless faith. You don't read Jesus on every page of the Bible. You'll get perhaps real excited about things that are supposedly going to happen in the old earthly Jerusalem. And people are all absorbed with those kinds of modern day prophecies. But do that and don't see Jesus. You'll be robbed of the joy of expecting the new Jerusalem, the one that Jesus is going to bring down from heaven. You see how important right biblical interpretation can be. What else do we see in Peter's portrait of the Old Testament prophets? In verse 11, they knew that their message didn't have its origin in their own imaginations. It wasn't bad pizza. Or bad dreams. Note that it was the Spirit of Christ Himself within them indicating these things. And Peter is even more explicit about this in his second letter. And since we're so close to it, uh, keep your place. Look over there at Second Peter chapter one for a moment. Second Peter, chapter one, the second letter. 
Come down to verse 21. <coughs> it says in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 21, listen carefully or follow along, no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. What Isaiah wrote did not find its source or its origin in Isaiah himself. What Jeremiah recorded did not have its origins within the bosom of Jeremiah himself. The Spirit of Christ, Peter says, was revealing to them. No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But listen, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That will be reason enough to study the Old Testament because God is speaking there. How shall we regard, and this morning I want to encourage us to honor, how shall we regard and honor the work of the prophets? I mean, can there be a higher calling than when God, by His Spirit, is setting the stage for redemption, the coming of His Son, and He puts His own words in the mouth of men and women, His prophets, centuries and centuries before Mary learns that what is conceived in her is by the Holy Spirit. We'll come back to our portion, back to 1 Peter 1, there at verse 11. These prophets of old, as we've already said, they didn't know it would be Jesus specifically. They didn't know how many years. They had no idea, I think, of how many generations would pass. It says they didn't know the time of his coming, because more important than those titillating details which so many are still curious about in our day. What is more important is the actual message of the gospel itself, especially the need for and the provision of a sacrifice for sin. This is what was important. You know, I get a little trouble with some of my brothers and sisters and professing Christians. You get with them and within 15 minutes... Uh, you're talking about the events of the last days and they're bringing out the newspaper and looking at the headlines and they're sure that uh, the Antichrist must be someone who just was recently elected to office in Washington or something. <laughs> Peter says what's important and what was important to the prophets was not the scintillating details of imaginary kinds of things. What was important to them should be important to us and that is the certainty of the predictions that there would be suffering for this Messiah before His glory would be fully revealed. There would be the cross before the crown. I do think in part of this too, the Spirit of Christ in the prophets was revealing, even in their own life experience, a pattern for the Christian life for all time. Not only a pattern of Christ's salvation work, but as a prototype, if you will, for every Christian's experience. We walk in the footsteps of the Savior. So let's give up for once and for all, I think, this notion of why do we suffer so? We walk in the footsteps of Jesus. We have not been glorified yet. This is the Calvary road. 
the pattern there. The prophets lived it. First, there is the sufferings, then the glory. Take up your cross, Jesus says. Join the march of the gospel. Lay down your life. I did, Jesus says. Deny yourself, that is your sinful, selfish self. Pursue righteousness. Walk a Calvary road. Let your faith be tried and proven true. Because the sufferings, remember, Peter said in just a few verses before, are only for a time. They're only for a season. The crown of glory is forever and ever as time itself with all its trials and tears are coming to a glorious consummation. That is our hope. That is the salvation in the future tense. Time will be no more. Only the glory that will follow. Thank God that the prophets were favored, even though through a glass darkly for sure, they were favored to comprehend such a gospel. They didn't understand it all, but they trusted. Now note, will you, in verse 12, God gave them their own personal reward. That's how I read it. God had a revelation just for them. The reward, I think, of their faithfulness. What was that revelation that he gave to them? It just increases, I think, our appreciation for them. Verse 12 tells us what it is. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but us. I can only pray that strikes at your heart like it did mine this week. I cannot help but wonder what conflicting emotions might have entered their minds at this point. Here they were making careful search and inquiry into their own writings because that truth had come from God only to be told, not for you, not now. This is for others even yet to be born. That's where we are, folks. That's our place in history. You know, I can almost see a Jeremiah thrown down into that miry septic pit for one reason. Because he was faithful to his calling. He was faithful to record the message. Only to discover at some point that his faithfulness would bring the reward of God's grace to others. I wonder if this could be a reason why for most of us, if not all of us, our sharing the gospel with others is something that is innately hard to do. And I know we've given many reasons why that may be, but I had fresh insight, I believe, from the example of the prophets this week. Listen, telling others, telling others that they are sinners and that they need a Savior. You know what? That can bring you and I into the pits too. Sometimes we might want to say, why bother? At least you're saved, right? But when we share the gospel, my friends, in a way similar now to the prophets, we are not serving ourselves. Maybe we don't witness as often or as boldly as we ought 
because it requires of us to be unselfish. We're serving others at that point. The point of their greatest need, whether they know it or not. And we are being faithful to the one who said, you will be my witnesses. And I've discovered, I think, this very week that that witnessing itself may be one of the most unselfish things we ever do. And when we serve not ourselves, well... That's when we look most like Jesus anyway. What did he say? I did not come to serve, he said, but to serve, to give my life a ransom for many. And I say, oh, may God give us more of this spirit of Christ and the resolve of the prophets. Would you say amen to that as well? Now, the rest of verse 12 reveals more clearly, I think, our place right now in history, this Redemptive history, stretching back to Genesis and the prophets. Peter has explained the role of the prophets, their place in the history of redemption. They came, what I like to think of now as before the dawn. It was dark. It was a confusing time. There was fear of judgment, and rightly so. There was much unfaithfulness, even though there was indeed a remnant that still hoped for a Messiah. But that was the prophet's place in history, the history of redemption. Their part was to tell generations that would come, not even in their time, that they should put their trust and their faith and their hope in the Christ now revealed and preached to us. But for them... What was it for them? Hebrews tells us, folks, so we could believe. So we could have a gospel to embrace. So we could know who the Savior is and what he did. They were stoned. They were sown in two. Sown in two. They were tested and tried. They were put to death with the sword. Hebrews says they were made destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, I love this phrase. It says, they were men of whom the world was not worthy. They gained approval through their faith, but did not receive. Not in their day, you see. They did not receive what was promised, Hebrews says. Why? Because they were serving not themselves, dear friends. They were serving us. They did not receive even what was promised. Not in their lifetime. Why? Hebrews 11.40, listen, says, because God had provided something better for us. What our forefathers in the faith endured was so that God could provide something better for us than they were even able to. To understand what is our place in history. I am so very grateful to be called a preacher of the gospel and to do so after the death, burial and resurrection of Christ. You and I have a high calling. We have come into this world literally in its last days. This is it. 
Heaven forbid we're it. And we're still here and not in heaven. And it's not to serve ourselves. The next person you meet is your mission field. And so what I've said this morning out of Peter's text is that those who came before us, they were found faithful. And they had less than half the information that we have been given. And so we pray, may all who come behind us find us faithful. We have a gospel that is clear and sure. We no longer have to puzzle at the shadows and the types. We know it's all about Jesus. You're saved, you say. Then understand that there's only one good reason why you haven't been taken to heaven. It's it's to live a little like the prophets of old. I say again, they weren't here to serve themselves, but to hold forth the gospel and to do so for God's glory. You know, way back in my seminary days, I loved attending the chapel services. I loved it a lot more than trying to learn Greek and Hebrew. I would enter that chapel, Biblical Theological Seminary in Pennsylvania, day after day for the chapel hour. I'd sit with my eyes focused on the scriptural motto over that pulpit until it had emblazoned itself in my soul. The words were this from 1 Thessalonians 2.4. Simple words. Put in trust with the gospel. We were there as students to learn, to make careful search and inquiry into the meaning of every text because we were being called to this high privilege. And so is every believer put in trust with the gospel. I've taken that seriously for more than 30 years now. And God has proved faithful. We need to wrap up the end of verse 12. It's a curious statement. Peter says that the angels are amazed by this gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. There in verse 12. Salvation things, he says, are things into which angels long to look. The the literal Greek in that phrase is curious. If You could translate it this way. They stretch out their necks. Get a picture of an angel just stretching out their necks, straining to see and comprehend the glory of the gospel. The part I think they could not grasp is not that God wasn't, was somehow loved. They knew that. They were loved of God. The part they could not grasp, they had to strain and stick out their necks to try to figure out, is that this gospel was for undeserving and rebellious sinners. And all their cousins that had already been cast out with Lucifer, for them, there is no salvation story. Angels long to grasp the depths of the wonder that Christ would come, the sinless one, to die for sinners like you and like me. We ought to be willing, I think, to stick out our necks because it was for us and to serve not ourselves, but the next person we meet.
for God's glory. The torch has been passed. These are Olympic Day. I love I love watching some of the Winter Olympics. Uh, that's inspiring. Now, there's another torch, and it has an eternal flame, and it has been passed to us, this generation. And it's not about uh, the glory of gold, silver, or bronze. We possess the glorious message of the gospel handed down to us by prophets who themselves never lived to see the day. But we have. And what is our message? It's not that complicated. It's the message of the cross. There's room at the cross for you. Though millions have come, the hymn writer says, still there is room at the cross for you. What a message we have to share with our loved ones, our neighbors, our co-workers, and our friends.